Well, thank you, Milton, for those very kind words. And I'm really happy to be here with you. And uh, this has been a really good time. I enjoy being down here. I lived for several years in San Bernardino um, when I was working on my PhD. And so it's um, good to be back in that general area. I know you're going to be like, we don't live in San Bernardino. Yeah, I understand. It's Riverside. But um, it's the same, you know, general area. Um, and uh, I'm here this morning with my family. Uh, my wife's over there, and the kids are, looks like they're in the kids' area, so that's good. Um, and I've also got my, uh, my wife's parents here, and they are from France. And my father-in-law is a pastor in France, and uh, they're here for the holidays and also to come around and share their ministry and tell you about it. So um, if that interests you, I strongly encourage you. There's a missions table over there you can see, and they'll be there after the service and to talk as long as you want. So um, if you have questions about France or you want to learn about what they're doing in their ministry, they have a very exciting story of um, what they've, uh, how God has used them over there and how he got them there in the first place. And so um, I really encourage you to check that out. Um, so yeah, I'm a, uh, I, I work over at the Masters University. We've got some literature over there too, and I'll be over there to talk to you about that or if you have creation questions or things. Um, and, uh, I also, um, get to serve my local church and, and I enjoy that. And, um, it's fun to be able to teach at a university where I constantly not only get to talk about God's creation, but I get to talk about scripture too. And that's really enjoyable to, um, see those two aspects kind of come together. And we're going to look at a little bit of that today. Um, you know, I would, I think it's, kind of cliche for me to say this, but, you know, we really do live in a beautiful world. Um, and you may not always feel that living in certain parts of the Inland Empire. I understand that. I was there. I get that. Um, but it is, you know, we were driving over here today and we saw um, the mountains with snow on them. And, you know, you do occasionally see wildlife that's alive out here. It happens. Um, and, you know, we can, we can enjoy that. Um, I, I personally enjoy seeing the everyday animals. Um, I'm the person that every time there's a lizard um, on the sidewalk or the wall, I'm like, there it is. Like, look at it. Stop. Stop what we're doing. You know, I'll stop whatever I'm doing. Go check it out. Um, I get really excited about it. And even squirrels, like, I'm like, oh, look at the squirrel, you know? Um, so we'll be at the zoo, like, looking at the animals, and there'll be a squirrel in the background. I'm like, oh, look at that. Um, you know, it's not just a distraction. Like, I get excited to see um, what God has made. Um, so I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time this past year. And uh, which is good because everyone made fun of me for a long time for being a geologist and not having been to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so I can finally say I've done it. Um, so I don't get mocked that way anymore. Um, and it wasn't my fault, by the way. I tried to go multiple times every time the trip was canceled. Um, it just wasn't God's timing for me to go. Um, but finally I was able to. And uh, yeah, it's it's grand. Like it's, <laughs> that was the right word. They used the right word for it. It's really amazing. Um, it's huge. Uh, it's It's hard to really put it into words. Um, so yes, I was very impressed. Um, but I think because it was so high up to me and because I tried to go so many times and didn't get to go, like I didn't have the emotional experience I was expecting, like standing there on the edge of the Canyon, you know, um, like I was like, wow, this is really great. But that was, you know, I didn't cry. Um, so like I was expecting to, you know, um, and I don't know, maybe there is something wrong with me that I'm like excited to go see every little lizard, but I didn't cry at the Grand Canyon. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, someone can diagnose me or something. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there probably is something wrong with me. I'll tell you, um, my, my wife um, a few weeks ago, 
don't know if you guys heard about this or not, but there were all these worms that washed up on a beach, like, up near the Bay Area. And uh, I was like, I want to go see this. And, you know, so I'm, like, looking up, like, uh, the, the distance. You know, it's, like, almost five or six hours or whatever. And my wife is like, you're going to drive five or six hours to see some worms that washed up on the beach. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we could, you know. Um, so... Like, I think that really God's glory is on display, even in weird worms that wash up on the beach. Like, it, he really built all these things. And I think what's wonderful about that kind of thing is it's like you don't normally get to see that. And that's what's exciting. Like, oh, that was in the deep ocean. and It's brought up. And so you can, you can see the things that, that God has made. And, and it's amazing to think about, right, that um, there are more stars out there than we're ever going to get to see before Christ comes back. Certainly visit, but even see. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to think about it, you know, and that's the world God made. Um, it's marvelous. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I think we should be in awe of God's creation and we're designed to be that way. Um, in fact, the psalmist, Psalm 104, 24, he says, "O Lord, how many are your works In wisdom? You have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think the psalmist was right to say that. Maybe you don't like Ekir and worms, um, but I'm sure you love seeing mountains and sunsets, beaches and flowers, um, seeing the Milky Way. Um, we enjoy those things. But how do you feel about mosquitoes? Or ticks? How do you feel about creatures that suck blood out of other creatures and transmit diseases to them? Do you know that more people die from parasite-bearing mosquitoes than die from any other animal? How do you feel about cuckoo birds? You might be like, oh, like the clocks. No. The real bird. There's a real bird called a cuckoo bird. Okay? Cuckoos, they don't raise their own young. Okay? What they do is they go to another bird's nest that has eggs in it, and they go and lay their egg there and then fly off. Okay? And you might be like, okay, yeah, they're bad parents, but, like, you know, is that really that bad? Well, here's what happens. When the cuckoo bird hatches... It disposes of its step-siblings. I don't know what you call them. It gets rid of the other birds that are there, um, the other babies. It'll kill them or it'll push them out of the nest so that the parents ignore them, whatever, so that it gets all the attention, okay? And so what happens is the birds that are supposed to be there, the parents that are there, they feed the cuckoo bird. And many times um, the cuckoo bird is actually larger than the birds that feed it, okay? But they just know it's an egg in my nest and it's a baby and I raise it. That's what I do. So um, Stephen Jay Gould, who is an atheist and evolutionist, he said about this, he said, I must confess that no scene of organic activity makes me angrier about the world's injustice than the sight of a foster parent, its own young killed by a cuckoo, solicitously feeding and begging parasite that may be up to five times its own size. How about an ichneumon wasp? You heard of that? Those were the major creatures that bothered the 19th century natural theologians who claimed that God's character could be easily detected through the observation of the natural world. That's because ichneumon wasps, although they're free-living as adults, most of them spend their larval stage as parasites feeding on the bodies of other animals. In some ichneumonoids, the mother attacks a caterpillar or a spider or an aphid and lays its eggs inside of the host, and then the eggs hatch, and the larval ichneumon wasps eat their host while it's still alive and walking around. So they're inside of it, wiggling around in there, gobbling up parts of it as it's moving around. 
In fact, in some species, the larvae eat the host in such a way that the, they eat the least essential parts first, and they leave the parts that it needs to live for as long as possible. So they're slowly eating away at the host, like a caterpillar, crawling around, and they'll eat everything that it doesn't need to survive until finally they have to eat like the circulatory system and you know, breathing apparatuses and things like that. Okay, how do you reconcile such a creature with the idea of a good God who made his works with wisdom? How can God make these kinds of processes and call them good? For example, consider what Charles Darwin wrote to his friend Asa Gray in 1860. He says, I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do, and as I should wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the ichneumenidae, those wasps, with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars or that a cat should play with mice. Okay, so Darwin was really bothered by this, even though he wasn't a believer. And theologians and others throughout the 1800s and today have wrestled with these concepts of what we call natural evil. How can there be a good God who allows suffering, not just in humans, but throughout the entire creation. Now, one response among Christians has been to try and deny that the natural world actually suffers. They just say, oh, people suffer, but what animals go through, that doesn't count as suffering. Um, so you have William Buckland, who was a, um, a Christian pastor and a geologist and paleontologist, actually named the first dinosaur, by the way, um, back in the 1800s. He wrote on the topic of predation, animals eating each other. And he said, the appointment of death by the agency of carnivore, this is how they talked back in the day, okay, as the ordinary termination of animal existence appears, therefore, in its main results to be a dispensation of benevolence. Okay, so in other words, animals eating each other is a good gift from God. It deducts much from the aggregate amount of the pain of universal death. It abridges and almost annihilates throughout the brute creation, the, mis the misery of disease and accidental injuries and lingering decay and imposes such salutary restraint upon excessive increase of numbers that the supply of food maintains perpetually a due ratio to the demand. Okay, so he's saying that having predators around keeps animals from suffering too much. So in other words, they could suffer a lot more, but having predators makes it suffer less. The result is that the surface of the land and depths of the waters are ever crowded with myriads of animated beings, the pleasures of whose life are coexistence with its duration, and which throughout the little day of existence that is allotted to them fulfill with joy the functions for which they are created. Okay, I don't find his argument particularly convincing. Uh, many other people agree. But as I said, I don't even think predation is the biggest problem. I think what Buckland is doing, what many people do, is we know the world right now needs predation. Yeah, it's good that God made animals to eat other animals right now, because if not, we'd have piles of corpses everywhere, and it'd be awful, right? Um, this is what sustains our current world. But to say that that's the only way God can make a good creation is like if you've ever read the book Flatland back in the Victorian times um, where a sphere comes and talks to a square, okay? And the square says, there's only two-dimensional world. And the sphere says, no, there's not, and brings him to the three-dimensional world. And he says, whoa, there's three dimensions. I can't believe it, you know? And when he comes back, he forgets that there were three dimensions at all, you know? And he goes and visits a, a one-dimensional world, you know, like a line. And he's like, I'm trying to tell you that there's two dimensions. And the line won't listen to him. You know, it's like this. But the whole point of the thing is, you know, we can't imagine what... Um, is different than our own existence, okay? 
And so I find many people have that limited imagination when it comes to what God could have done and what he did do and what he will do. But as I said, I don't even think predation is the biggest problem. I think parasites and diseases and all kinds of other things are, are so much worse, right? We talked about parasites. We could talk about disease and genetic mistakes. What purpose does a whale calf born with two heads serve but to suffer and die? You know, a whale goes through an incredibly long pregnancy, finally gives birth to a whale and has two heads and it just dies instantly. What's the point of that? Seems useless. Doesn't seem like a good functioning, well-working creation. Is this really the creation that God proclaimed was very good? And if we claim that God calls something good that we say is bad, what does that say about the character of God? So instead of ignoring this problem, we're trying to claim that it really isn't all that bad. I want to instead demonstrate to you that the authors of scriptures were very aware of this problem and that the Bible has an excellent explanation of why there is suffering of both man and beast where that suffering came from and how God will one day utterly and completely deal with the problem of pain and suffering to the praise of his glory. You can see from the screen, we're going to be in Romans eight today. We're jumping in the middle of book, right? Now, many of you, I'm sure have read Romans. Others have not. I think I need to explain to you kind of our context we're in. So I'm going to do a quick survey of the book of Romans. Okay, here we go. Um, Paul is going to lay out for us the gospel here. It's really what Romans is. He's explaining to us how a person who is born rebellious and unregenerate becomes a glorified believer. Okay. Um, so Romans one and two, Paul talks about that. Every person is lost and deserves the wrath of God. Romans 1, 18 through 20. You don't have to turn here. I'm just going to read this to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul explains that both the godless Gentile sinner and the Jewish sinner are under the wrath of God because he knows that some of his readers will think they're superior to the rest of the world because they're Jewish and they have the scriptures and they try and keep the law. But Paul points out to them that even though they know the law, they don't keep it perfectly. And as a result, everybody is under condemnation. And so in chapter three, Paul explains the desperate nature of our plight. Romans three ten through 11, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he also explains in chapter three and in the following two chapters that God stepped in to save us when we could not save ourselves, saving us from our sins and the wrath of God. Romans 5.8-9 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. In Romans three twenty one through 22, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good news. 
And those who have been saved through their belief in Christ's death for the forgiveness of their sins are then instructed in chapter six to live in a way that matches their new life. Listen to what he says in chapter six, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And Paul explains in chapter seven, the ongoing battle the Christian has between the two natures before exclaiming, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of its death? And then in chapter eight, we get the answer. Chapter eight begins with a beautiful statement. Verse one, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul explains in this chapter that our salvation is not yet complete for God must restore all things to himself. Paul makes it clear that we have nothing to fear because those whom God predestined, he also called those whom he called. He also justified and those whom he justified. He also glorified. And if God is for us, then who is against us? And finally, Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that's the context our passage today is in. Okay, this is a triumphant expectation passage. This is a good news passage. Paul says of believers currently in Romans 8, 16 through 17, you can read along with me, he says, The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We just sang about this. It's fantastic. Look at verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. You say, well, I loved everything up until that part where it said suffer, right? Yeah, that's what Paul says. We have to suffer with him. But there's good, yeah. But there's good news. It's worth it. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is really, really good news. Paul says that whatever pain we experience now as believers is going to be completely obliterated by the glorious future that awaits us. For me, that's a very reassuring thought. If you're a believer, when you stand before Christ one day, just being in his glorious presence will totally overshadow even the worst things that ever happened to you. God will make it right. That's where Paul's going. That's what this text is about. He's going to show us that God is going to make everything right for us because as you already know, things are pretty terrible here lots of times. I mean, yes, we can sometimes agree with Louis Armstrong, right? We can think to ourselves, what a wonderful world when we see trees of green and clouds of white and babies grow and whatnot, okay? But there's also lots of really terrible stuff that happens here every day. But look at verse 23. Skip through our passage. We're actually going to look at. Go to the other end of it. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It's a very interesting verse. And you'll notice the first few words there, and not only this, implies that we skip something. Okay, we're getting back to that. That's actually our passage. This is all still introduction. Okay, but I want you to see here that our journey is not over. God is not finished working on you when you're saved. You ever thought about that? Like, oh, I'm saved. Why can't I just go to heaven right away? No, God has stuff to do with you. That was just the first step. We are awaiting a time will be completely set free from all of the bad things. The suffering we experience currently can be lots of reasons, right? Maybe you suffer because of your personal sin. Some people do. But maybe you're not in sin at that time. Maybe you're suffering because of the sins of other people or because of disease. Or maybe you're suffering because of financial downturn or just seeming randomness in general. Right? You read stories about people that they're just sitting in their living room and a meteor comes through their house. Like, what is that? I mean, that's really crazy. But listen, one day God will fully adopt us as his children and our bodies themselves will be redeemed. Yes, our bodies. When you die as a believer, if you were to die right now as a believer, you immediately go to heaven to be in the presence of God. But you don't yet have a new body. But Paul makes it clear here that you will get one eventually. We're always meant to have bodies. That's our hope. But now we've got to think back to that first phrase. And not only this, but we ourselves. What's that all about? And why does he talk about groaning? What's the deal with that? Well, it turns out, as we're going to see in our passage, we are not the only ones awaiting restoration. Let's go to the text. Look at verse 19 with me. Romans eight nineteen, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. That's our text. Let's look back at verse 19. We see here that the creation has an eager anticipation. Paul says that the creation has an anxious longing and that it's eagerly waiting. Okay. For us to understand what that means... We need to answer two questions. First of all, what does he mean by the creation? And then secondly, what does he mean by anxious longing and eagerly waiting? Okay, when he says the creation, we can know for sure that it's not us as believers. How do we know? Because he literally says, remember the verse we read? Um, Verse 23, not only this, but we ourselves. So this first part is not about us. Okay, so we know it's not about believers And he certainly can't mean unbelievers either because he says that the creation will be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And unbelievers will not be. If you die as an unbeliever, you are not set free. You face eternity in hell. Well, along the same lines, then he can't be talking about Satan and the fallen angels. That wouldn't make any sense. 
And he's not talking about the good angels because the good angels have not been subjected to futility and are not currently in slavery to corruption. So if he's not talking about people and he's not talking about angels, what is he talking about? He's talking about the non-human physical creation. He's talking about animals and plants and rocks and seas, about planets and stars and clouds and euglenas. He is saying that the other physical things God made are anxiously longing and waiting eagerly for the revelation of God's children. So let's talk about the anxious longing, right? John MacArthur says the Greek word that we translate as that is an especially vivid word that literally refers to watching with outstretched head. Think about your dog having its head out the window, right? Or when you're looking for someone to come, you stretch out. Oh, I just almost killed myself. Okay. sometimes you can stretch out your head, he says, and it suggests standing on tiptoes with eyes looking ahead with intent expectancy. Now, everyone here who's a dog owner knows that dogs can anxiously long and eagerly wait for their owners to come home. Okay, if you own a dog, you know this, right? They'll just sit in front of the door, like for hours. You can leave a camera there and they'll just like sit and look at the door and wait for you to come in. Um, But you know, trees don't do that. I've never seen gypsum do that. Never noticed Mars in its orbit showing any kind of eager anticipation or tardigrades under the microscope demonstrating a kind of anxious longing. Not that I would know how to observe that. So what does Paul mean? Well, he's using personification, right? He's describing nature with human attributes. He's representing the physical universe as a person standing at their tiptoes, watching out the window for an expected event to occur. But listen to me. It's more than just a literary device here. He's using a literary device, but I don't want you to miss that he's describing something very real here. And we're going to see this as we advance through the passage. Okay, so we saw the creation's eager anticipation. We're now going to see the creation's past subjection. Look with me at verse 20. I'll read it again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, I was going to keep going. I cut it off there. Okay, if you look at verse 20, we get a really interesting phrase. For the creation was subjected to futility. Okay, what does futility mean? Well, sometimes that's translated, some of your Bibles might say vanity. Is that the word here? Okay, um, this carries the idea of being unable to succeed or achieve your purpose. You're, you're thwarted, you're stopped. You're trying to accomplish something and you can't do it. Okay, um, in other words, creation was made to be astoundingly more productive than it is today, to be better than it is today, but it was subjected to futility, which forced it to be less than it could be. Okay, so one commentator I was reading, he said, um, it can be compared to a very powerful world champion boxer or wrestler who is chained in such a manner that he can't make use of his tremendous physical prowess. Okay, so imagine we're like, okay, you're going to be in a fight, you're the world's best boxer, but you have to tie your hands behind your back, right? Well, you might be able to win still. Depends who you're fighting, right? Um, But that's really going to put you at a disadvantage. And that's what the creation is at right now. It's at a disadvantage. That's the point. And notice what Paul says here. He says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't ask for this. It didn't want this to happen to it, but it happened to it. So Paul here is saying that nature is not currently what it once was, 
and that the reduction of its capabilities is something that happened in time. It's an event. Okay, so in other words, God made nature fantastically amazing and productive, doing everything to its best and fullest capacity. But then something happened that tied nature's hands behind its back. Now, you might think at first that Paul's talking about the inevitable decay that comes with time, right? So you think about like buying a new car and you drive it for a while and it's like, oh, it works like a charm. It's wonderful. And then after a few years or thousands of miles, you start to notice some problems, right? It starts to run down in certain ways and it gets worse and worse over time. But listen to me, this is not what Paul's saying. This is not his point. He says that the creation was subjected to futility, notice, by a person, right? Let me quote it again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Paul indicates that the creation was running very well, and then it was sabotaged. Someone came in and, to use our analogy, slashed the tires of your car, okay? It was not a gradual thing, it was a sudden thing. So what on earth is Paul talking about? Well, in order to understand, we got to go back to the beginning of the Bible. So flip back with me to Genesis. Go to the table of contents. Keep going. You may have like a little foreword or something. Okay, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We're not going to read directly from these. But as many of you know, Genesis 1 and 2 describe God's creation of everything. And it is all things. It is everything, by the way. If you want confirmation, that go to Colossians 1, where it says that God the Son made all things, both things in heaven and on earth. But look with me at the very last verse of Genesis chapter 1. This is Genesis 1, 31. Genesis 1, 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Not a shocker. If you've been in church for a long time, you've heard this before. This is Sunday school stuff, right? And when we look at the world today, we can see good. But as we said, we also see a lot of things that we kind of feel like we should call bad and that we actively try to stop from happening, you know, like landslides and earthquakes and mosquitoes and things. So where does that come from? Well, that's where Genesis 3 comes into play. So flip over a page or two or however many pages it is to get to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, now Genesis chapter 3 covers another story you'd be familiar with from Sunday school if you grew up in the church. This is where God told Adam and Eve, the first people, not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, the serpent, who we find out is Satan, deceived Eve and she ate of the fruit and gave some to Adam and he ate it too. After this, God comes and speaks to all three of the beings there and curses them because of their sins. So look, let's look at Genesis chapter three. Look with me at verse 14. Genesis three 14. We're going to do a little bit of reading. It says the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay, 
We're not going to get to Adam yet. We will just take a little break for a minute because I want to point out some interesting things here. Firstly, the serpent is cursed more than all of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. That implies that the cattle and the rest of the beasts of the field are also cursed along with the serpent, just not to the same extent, right? He's cursed more than them. They're cursed a little. He's cursed more. That's the idea. Note also the first statement of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, if you want to use the fancy terms. Okay, look at Genesis 3.15 with me. I really wish we had a lot of time because you could do a whole sermon here, but we don't have time. But I I don't want you to miss this because it's so important. God promises in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of Eve would be attacked by Satan, right? He says, bruise him on the heel, but that he would utterly crush Satan's head. And this, of course, is a reference to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his final defeat of Satan, sin and death that we look forward to in the future. Okay, that's prophesied way, way back here. That's stated in the third chapter of the Bible. That's pretty cool. Okay, but we got to keep moving. Look at the woman. The suffering that she undergoes in labor, we find its origins here as the result of her sin. But now we got to look at what God says to Adam. Look at verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded to you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Okay, notice what he says in verse 17. The ground is cursed. Thorns and thistles will grow from it. Why? Because it will make man's labor hard. It will make it difficult. Note the idea of futility here, right? You're going to work and work and work and work, and the ground will be hard, and it doesn't want to give you its produce, and then you'll die, and you'll just turn back into dust. It seems very futile, right? Like you work and work and work and for what? To go into dust. This is very much the idea you get in Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes 3, 19 through 20. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to flip over there really fast. Okay, Ecclesiastes 3, 19 through 20. Listen to what he says. For the, sa- the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, And there is no advantage for man over beast for all is vanity or emptiness. Same idea, futility. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. Now, you got to remember Ecclesiastes. Okay. Took a little chunk out. You got to read to the end of the book to see that not everything is vanity. Not everything is emptiness. But the point is that under the sun, if you just use that perspective, if you're not considering the revelation of God, person gets hit by a car, dog gets hit by a car, looks the same, right? You don't really notice a difference. It's not like you can, it's not like in Star Wars where they disappear, right? Or you see the, something special happen, the person glows or something. No, it's, person just looks like a dead animal. Now we know ultimately, and like I said, if you read to the end of Ecclesiastes, you will see that there is something spiritual that awaits the person. But in the under the sun perspective, it just seems like it's useless. But I want you to note here, work itself is not the curse. 
The curse that God pronounces on Adam and all humans is, is not work in and of itself. It's the difficult, backbreaking, seemingly meaningless labor. Working every day for what? Adam and Eve were commanded to rule over the animals and tend the Garden of Eden before sin entered the creation. Okay, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God gives them things to do. They have work. Adam names the animals. Adam's supposed to take care of the garden. They're supposed to rule over the fish and the birds. They had jobs. The difference is that before they sinned, it was enjoyable work. Humans and nature would have coexisted peacefully and would have responded well to each other. You wouldn't have had to pull weeds out of your garden, at least not like the way you do now. Um, it would have been something that you would have enjoyed, but now it was going to be grueling and it was going to be much less rewarding. Okay, now I'm going to tell you that this passage, this specific historical event is exactly what Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans 8, 19 through 22. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just hurt themselves. Their sin affected all people. And it didn't just affect people. It affected the non-human parts of nature too. One commentator, Hendrickson, he said, we must bear in mind that it was not by its own choice. Hence, was not nature's own fault that it was made subject to futility. It was not the irrational creation that sinned. It was man. And the one who subjected the creation to futility was God. God is the him in Romans 8.20. Because of Adam and Eve, because of their sin, remember, they were God's representative rulers of the earth. So when they sinned, God cursed them and the rest of creation into a fallen, futile state. Now, you might think, but that's not fair. Why should little bunnies suffer because of what Adam and Eve did thousands of years ago? To which I reply, yes, you get it. That's how sin works. When a king of a country makes a sinful and unwise decision, every person in his kingdom suffers. When the CEO embezzles money and bankrupts the company, hundreds or thousands of people can be forced out of work. If a teacher does not do a good job communicating information, then the students suffer when it's time for the test. That's what sin is like. It always has consequences on others who were not the ones who committed the sin. That is why sin is nasty and vile. That is why we desire earnestly for sin to be destroyed. And we're not the only ones who excuse me. We're not the only ones who desire. Flip back to Romans 8 with me. We're going to look at verse 21. Okay, and we're going to see how all this ties together here. Look at Romans 8, verse 21. Start in verse 20. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is in hope that it's going to be set free. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Our fate, humans, and nature's fate are intertwined. MacArthur said, nature's destiny is inseparably linked to man's. Because man sinned, the rest of creation was corrupted with him. Likewise, when man's glory is divinely restored, the natural world will be restored as well. 
That's what the creation is waiting in hope for, to be set free from its bondage, to be made free. It's just like us. We wait eagerly to be set free from the stupidity and the vileness of our sins. We want to be set free from our foolish and insidious flesh. We want to be set free from the corruption and the decay of our bodies. We want to be in the world that God is preparing for us, the place where righteousness dwells, and the creation itself yearns for the same. It's waiting for our redemption story to wrap up so that it too can be restored. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this passage, what is described is the entire deliverance of the whole creation from the bondage of corruption, not a temporary deliverance, but a final, permanent, complete deliverance. So what does final, permanent, complete deliverance for the creation look like? Well, thankfully, Scripture gives us some glimpses at the creation's glorious future. So we're going to, we looked at the deep past, well, not geologically. We looked at the creation event. We're now going to look at the distant future. Okay? Now, there's a lot of debate about end times and how they play out, but we do know for certain that God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And I'm going to show you that from the Scriptures. But I believe from the scriptures that there is also a time where Christ will reign personally over the earth for a thousand years, what we call the millennium. And he's going to fulfill the thing that Adam never did. Christ is going to return nature to an Edenic state. Listen to Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. You don't have to turn here. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And after that, as I said, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Okay? Listen to, this is both an Old Testament and a New Testament concept. Isaiah 65, 17, you don't have to turn there. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. 2 Peter three thirteen. but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But do flip with me to this one. Revelation chapter 21. It's my favorite passage on the topic a wonderful passage. Revelation 21, we're going to start in verse 1. I hope you're encouraged by these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city near Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Do you understand the beauty of this passage? 
This is our hope. Listen, one day there's not going to be any more pain. There's no more suffering. No one will ever hurt you ever again. As bad as it has been or as bad as it may be on this earth, we have to remember what Paul tells us in Romans 8. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Some of you in here have been through horrendous things, I'm sure. Let me tell you something. God knows. God cares. And God will make it right. Maybe not while you're here on this earth, but he will make it right one day. He will make everything right. That is our blessed hope as Christians. So what does that look like for the non-human part of nature? Well, we can be certain that it will no longer be subjected to corruption and futility. Its suffering will be over. It'll be set free. Will every caterpillar that was eaten alive by a wasp larva get rest? I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't know how God's going to make things right, but he will. I like to think about what C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain about lions. He says, and if we cannot imagine even our own eternal life, much less can we imagine the life the beast may have as our members. If the earthly lion could read the prophecy of the day when he shall eat hay like an ox, he would regard it as a description not of heaven, but of hell. And if there is nothing in the lion but carnivorous sentience, then he is unconscious and his survival will have no meaning. But if there is a rudimentary leonine self, so that also God can give a body as it pleases him, a body no longer living by the destruction of the lamb, yet richly lion in the sense that it also expresses whatever energy and splendor and exulting power dwelled within the visible lion on this earth. I think the lion, when he has ceased to be dangerous, will still be awful. Now, back in the day, awful meant awesome. Okay, so that's the idea. Awe-inspiring. I think the lion, when he has ceased to be dangerous, will still be awful. Indeed, that we shall then first see that of which the present fangs and claws are a clumsy and satanically perverted imitation. There will be something like the shaking of a golden mane, and often the good duke, meaning Christ, will say, let him roar again. Yeah, I don't know what it's like to have a restored line. I don't know how God's going to transform all the creation. He doesn't tell us those details, but I can be confident that he will make it right. And whatever glory he has shown us here is just a tiny taste of what's ahead, both for us and for the creation. Now, I don't think the lion's claws and fangs are, as C.S. Lewis says, satanically perverted. God did form them. They work well in this current world, and we can be impressed at the way they work. God designed them to kill. But it was not always that way. Remember, we're looking at it with a hand tied behind its back. So regardless of how a lion or an ichneumon wasp looks in a restored state, we can be confident that our God knows how to make all things good and that we will be utterly astonished at the wonders he has yet to show us. The things we see as good on this earth now are just shadows of the glorious future he has in store for those who trust him. But trust is what we have right now. We live in hope that this certain future will come to pass so as great as it is to meditate on the blessings that await us and the non-human creation, we have to now step back to the present. Look with me at verse 22 of Romans 8. 
If you're not there, you can flip back over there. I'm not there, so you got time. Okay. Romans chapter 8. Looking at the last verse of our passage. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What is the current state like as it waits for this restoration? It's like a woman who's in labor. It's the idea. She's in great pain. She's going to give birth. One commentator said, to be sure, such groaning does indicate suffering, but it also implies hope. As John Calvin reminds us, these groans are birth pangs, not death pangs. A mother who is in labor is in great pain, but she pushes forward knowing that she will soon experience immeasurable joy. That is the state the creation's currently in. It's suffering, but it will soon and very soon experience joy when its maker returns to restore it. And remember what Paul says, that's also us. We also groan inwardly with the same pains. It's very much like when you were like a kid, right? And you were waiting for Christmas to come. Do you remember that? My kids just experienced this. Every day. How many more days till Christmas? Oh, I can't wait. Can it come sooner? Is there a way we can make it come faster? Listen, that's what the creation is experiencing right now. It's personified, obviously, but that's what it's doing. It's, it's good news for the creation and for all of us. But instead of waiting for that one special day, it'll be waiting for an eternity of joy, bringing glory to our creator together as we were meant to be. We've looked at some really amazing promises from God today. So what do we do with them? How does this help us right here and right now? Now, we've talked a lot about how we should view nature currently and in the future, but I want to take a moment with you to step back in the past again. What do we need to learn from this? Well, firstly, the fall and the curse were real events in history. Originally, people and nature didn't suffer the way they do today. When Adam and Eve sinned, they dragged down us and all of nature with them. For us to understand the suffering we see both in humans and in animals in our current time, we have to understand the reality of that past event. And secondly, when we look at the fossil record, we see abundant evidence for pain and suffering and disease and predation and parasitism and futility. We have fossils of plants with thorns that are conventionally dated to over 350 million years ago. We have fossils of dinosaurs with cancerous tumors. We have fossils of ichthyosaurs that died while giving birth. This fossil record then is something that must have been made after Adam and Eve brought sin and death into the creation. You heard today multiple times Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why do I tell you this? Because there's a lot of Christians who think they can just accept deep time and theistic evolution into their worldview without issue. They think all it does is mess up a few chapters in Genesis. But let me tell you now, that's not a correct understanding. To have death and suffering before the introduction of sin really complicates the overall narrative of the Bible. And it calls into question the goodness of God. I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian and believe in evolution. I'm just saying that it's going to really complicate your theology. 
and it robs us of one of our most powerful apologetic and evangelistic tools we have, which is an answer to the problem of suffering. Today, I hope that you are able to leave with a greater understanding of the problem of suffering, of the nature of the non-human creation, and of the glorious future that awaits God's children and the non-human world in heavens. But more than that, I want you to see how this applies to your life right now. So if you came here today as an unbeliever, I want you to see how amazingly great heaven is. But more importantly, how great God's love is. When Adam and Eve directly disobeyed him and plunged the entire cosmos into chaos, he didn't abandon them. In fact, he was eager to rescue them and to rescue us. And God's love is so great that it doesn't even stop at people. He wants to restore all things to himself. Everything sin is corrupted, he wants to restore. But if you do not accept his free gift of eternal life through faith, then you will not share in this marvelous restoration. You will not be redeemed and you will die in your sins. While pain and suffering are eliminated from believers and from the non-human creation, they will remain upon Satan, his angels, and those who reject God's son. Don't miss out on what God has for those who love him. Repent and believe today. And if you came here as a believer, I hope that you have a deeper understanding of the origins of suffering and God's plan for its eradication. I hope that you see how interconnected the Bible is, how unified it is in the central story of Christianity, that God made everything good, that sin corrupted things, that God saw fit to send his son to die on the cross to redeem humanity and that God will restore everything and make it into a better world than we could ever imagine. A perfect place for his children to dwell in security and never again to sin or be sinned against. As I said earlier, I'm wrapping up with this. Some of you in here have faced indescribable evil and some of you have yet to. Some of you have faced persecution for your beliefs, for your skin color, for your societal status, for your background. Some of you have faced disease and disability. Some of you have lost friends, family, opportunities, relationships. Listen to me. God knows, God sees, God cares, and he doesn't stop there. One day he will right every wrong He will fix this broken place. He will bring justice and mercy. And even the worst things imaginable will be completely overshadowed by the immensity of his majestic glory. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly father, thank you so much for your word, for what it shows us that you are a God who transforms that rather than destroy what you have made and start over, you redeem what you've made. You restore what you've made and you do it all for your glory and for our good. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this, that you would transform our minds, help us to see how incredibly majestic you really are. And Lord, I pray that now as we take the offering, that you would help us to give with hearts of joy, not under compulsion, out of a desire to see your work accomplished in this world, that one day we might all rejoice together at your throne and a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And it's your name I pray. Amen.